millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, hello, hello. We're here again. I'm Peter Hart, and I'm with, I'm with, I'm with the sexiest man in North London, described as such by, by many. What's your name, sexiest man in North London? Gary Bain. Gary Bain. Even the way he says it, it's mellifluous, listeners. Yeah. Mellifluous. I should correct you, Pete. We're not actually together. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, a Zoom recording yet again, and, uh, and the British government's just announced we're going into full lockdown. Deep joy. Deep joy, indeed. I'm, I'm enjoying it already. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what are we talking about today, Gary? Well... First of all, Pete, I'd like to congratulate you, if I may, on your new book. You mean the Gallipoli evacuation? You nearly forgot, didn't you? I didn't nearly forget. I would never forget. I'm, I am a professional historian. I always know what my books are called. How did you get on with the batteries, professional historian, for your sound recording? <laughs> well, I did have to change it because I'd let them run down. But the punters wouldn't have known that. They do you know. I'm t- absolutely delighted that uh, the book's out. It's uh, it's finally out. There were uh, one or two delays. Did you notice any delays? Well, to be fair, you know, COVID has impacted a number of industries and it did have an impact. Yeah, it's uh, apparently the Australian printing uh, uh, industry is in, in bits. Uh, uh, too much demand. I think it's probably the demand for printing the book, do you reckon? Demand for your book, essentially, yeah. Yeah, that'll be... It'll have thrown the whole industry out of kilter. Anyway, it's it's available. Where, where They can get it now. It'll be posted direct to your house if the bookshops are closed. And it's on livinghistorytv.com. So you can buy it there. And I hope you all do, because then I'll be able to, to carry on eating gruel and the occasional glass of cider, as opposed to the, the, the meaningless vista that lies before me if the book's not a success. It's a very good book. I've got my copy. And, you know, it, large print is very helpful with my eye. <laughs> you have got wodgy eyes. Yeah. I nearly said something else. Well, one of them. Let's get on with the podcast. Enough of this uh, Disguised, advertised, disguised. It wasn't very well disguised. What, what are we talking about today, Gary? Well, we're talking about uh, young Haig again. And this time uh, we're talking about uh, when he was a major in the Second Boer War. Now, it's interesting that the you know people 
people perhaps might not know that there had been a previous Boer War, but there'd been a very short, uh, I'd describe it as skirmish, between December uh, of 1880 and March of 1881, which was the first Boer War. Uh, um, Did we win that one? We won that one, then I think we lost it again, and then we sort of won it. It had very obscure beginnings. It was uh, apparently triggered around the seizure of some goods of a boar who uh, hadn't paid a tax bill, apparently. So I'm paying my tax tomorrow, just in case. Yeah, you don't want to start a war. No. But we're talking about the Second Boer War uh, uh, and Haig's part in it. Now, uh, so where are we with Haig? We, well, uh, we urge people list, to listen to our first one, which is sort of Douglas Haig and, and the Battle of, uh, and the Sudan campaign. Um, and and that, that had given Douglas Haig his first battle experience, hadn't it? Uh, you know, and it was quite, quite an experience. There tens of thousands of Māori warriors charging towards him. Uh, he'd, he'd, he'd seen action for the first time and he'd done well, uh, but it's going to be very different in the Boer War. It's a different set of challenges, isn't it? Very different. And we're going to look at how, how he responds, are we? Yeah, so where was Haig at this time, just prior to the Boer War? So the Boer War starts in 1899, doesn't it? So what was Haig doing? Well, he'd, finished, he'd gone back home in 1898. I think he starts back home in September 1898 after the Sudan campaign. And he comes back to uh, the 7th Hussars, fine body of men, you would normally say. Uh, lovely uniform. Lovely, lovely. They were all from Birmingham, 7th Hussars. <laughs> Where were they based? Uh, Norwich. <laughs> now, the thing about <laughs> Norwich is uh, it's got some things in common with uh, with uh, Khartoum because it's sort of in a, there's a river that sort of bends round it and, and it's a sort of featureless desert. <laughs> I apologise unreservedly to the residents of Norwich. Well, he didn't seem to like it much. He was back in regimental duties. Uh, what, what was one of the highlights of his regimental duties that crops up in his diary? Come on, Gary. What was the highlight of his, of his activities? He was given control of the regimental canteen and um, ordering the fish from the market. Oh, that's a big job, Gary. It's a big job. <laughs> well, well, he was a big man. Uh, yeah. uh, um, and uh, so that's it. He, and he's, he's training his squadron. He was a great believer that officers should should always train up their squadrons. And, and of course, there's sport, there's polo, there's all that sort of things. But it, it's a bit repetitive, isn't it? It's, he'd, done, he'd done this before, hadn't he? Yeah, and he, he'd also been uh, given promises of a, a staff posting, and that seems to have uh, disappeared. So he, he was probably not having the greatest time of his career, to be fair. No, he, he, well, a young officer, and uh, although uh, he, he's still a young officer, but his career isn't exactly motoring along, is it? it, it it's, a, it's doing well, but... He must have been wondering what was happening. But in, in April, he gets his big step up. And uh, this is when he goes off to act as brigade major to the cavalry brigade under the command of Brigadier General John French, who uh, is, is featured throughout Haig's career. Yeah, he um, first met him in India, hadn't he? Yeah. But uh, there's, uh, there's a terrible scandal. Now, this scandal, I, it, it's one of those things that it's completely understandable what, what, what Haig did. But it could have, and I would say probably should have, uh, ended both of their careers. Uh, get, you, you, you know more about this than me. What, what had happened? Uh, just fill it in for us. What, what did Haig do and why was it wrong? Well, Brigadier General French uh, was not good with money. Amongst other things, he had a, a, a very different lifestyle to Haig's. Uh, and he'd, he'd made some rather poor investments in some South African mining shares. 
So he was a greedy bugger trying to make a massive profit. Well, he was speculating, I think it's fair to say. Now, there is no exaggeration here. He was on the brink of bankruptcy as a result. And his creditors were pushing him very, very, very hard. Um, And uh, he approached Haig. It wasn't an offer. He actually asked Haig for a loan. Um, Now, Haig's legal advisor... told Haig that he couldn't do what he wanted to do. He just wanted to guarantee the amount to the creditors. And uh, it was his lawyer that told him he would have to make a loan. And uh, Haig eventually gave way. And uh, this is a quote that uh, talks about the most pressing amount. There was £800 that was needed practically within 24 hours to stave off the bankruptcy. It was that, it was that close to... It was that close. The brink. Uh, and the total amount ended up being around £2,000, which in today's money is around about £100,000. This is a serious amount of money. And Haig says to, uh, in a, a communication with his lawyer, I've wired that I'll produce the £800. It would be a terrible thing if French was made a bankrupt. Such a loss to the army as well as to me personally. For, of course, we can do a lot here together towards improving things. And so I, that's I the, think he genuinely felt that. That's genuine sentiment, I think. But it's still wrong, isn't it? It is. And, you know, £2,000 at the time was a fortune. Bear in mind that whilst Haig had a, a reasonable income from the estate from his, his father, who we've mentioned passed away previously and was a successful businessman, that was split amongst his siblings. So he was never well off. Uh, and indeed, after the, the, the Great War, he couldn't afford to, to purchase Burmeside. That was purchased for him by public subscription. So this was an enormous amount of money. Now, um, so he, he did it. And uh, and people often pick, people who hate Haig will pick on it. Uh, funny enough, I think it is wrong. Uh, and in, if you did it in the modern army, your feet wouldn't touch the ground, I suspect. Well, the problem uh, is I, that... that John French could influence his career, directly influence his career. And and that's the problem. There is also some some debate about how and when it was paid back. It was it seemingly interest was charged. So it was a proper legal agreement around the loan, but not a public one, but not a public one. And I don't believe that it was paid back any time quickly. And and, uh, I've read dates that are as late as uh, uh, 1909, for example. Blimey. Uh, well, it, 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 uh, we'll have to move on. Uh, in September 1899, uh, uh, Sir John French, well, not Sir, I don't think he was Sir then, he was made Major, was Major General, General John French, and he was posted as commander of the cavalry in Natal, and Haig was going to be his Deputy Assistant Adjutant General, or his dog. 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 That's like a Chief of Staff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That is exactly what it's like, Gary. Uh, and they had to go, uh, uh, well, pell-mell. They went, there was no doubt. They caught the uh, SS Norman and, and they went off on the 23rd of September. Now, uh, they were heading for the Boer War. And we've, we've got strong opinions about the Boer War, haven't we, Gary? Uh, and uh, it's quite interesting. <laughs> we're a guinea, are we? We're a guinea. Yeah, I think it's fair to say it's naked imperialism. There, there wasn't a great deal of uh, interest in the Transvaal, uh, and indeed the railways sort of just hugged the coast. They didn't go very far up into the, the Transvaal until the discovery of gold. Ooh. Ah, gold, there be gold in them, the hills. Yeah, so, so I think it was, uh, you know, the, the, the 
the Brits had various degrees of wanting to be involved in South Africa or not wanting to be involved. They wanted a single state. They wanted control of individual states, as did the Germans. You know, the Germans were active there as well. Um, so I think we both think it's naked imperialism. Yeah, it is. Now, the, the trouble was... Um... We'd rather underestimated the Boers, had we? From top to bottom, uh, the, the Boer armies of the Transvaal and Orange Free States, uh, they totaled 54,000 men. Uh, now, now, how many did we have in theatre at that time, Gary? You've looked this up, haven't you? Oh, we, we had more than enough to cope with that. We had um, 15,000. Ah, so just the uh, 39,000 less. Uh, uh, well, but, but presumably the Boers are a bit like fuzzy wuzzies, as uh, is the rather racist expression. For, uh, just like in the Sudan, there, uh, they, what were they armed with? Pointed mango fruit? No, the the Boers were. They weren't just armed farmers. These were expert shots, and because of the discovery of the gold, they were able to buy the best weaponry. So they were actually armed with the German seven millimeter Mauser, the smokeless version. Smokeless. Yeah, so you couldn't see where you were being sniped at, for example. Uh, and they were bloody good shots, and, and they were effective up to a, sort of 1,200 yards, where the, the British view was anything over 800 yards was practically luck. These were very, you needed very volley, good. You needed volley fire almost if yeah, it was overrated. And, and uh, you know, they're very good at field craft. They're, they're masters of concealment, and uh, they had... Not only better rifles, but they had better artillery as well. Well, that's that's surprising. Yeah, they had Krupp, didn't they? Krupp they guns. Did. And now, the other thing, they were highly mobile, and this is crucial to what happens in the campaign. They are they are mostly mounted, and they're highly mobile, uh, much more mobile than anybody we, that we'd we'd faced before. Uh, they have an annual call-up. They have a weapons test, and they keep their white rifles at home. This is gonna this is gonna be a problem, isn't it? It is. I mean, that, that is a very good description of what we would describe as a personal weapon. You know, it's their responsibility. Uh, the training is superb. Um, <laughs> they are a very competent foe. And there we are. We've, we're outnumbered by 39,000. And uh, what's our plan? Uh, what is, is, it, is it a good plan, Gary? Well, I think it's 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 a very simple plan. The first uh, intention was to defend the Cape Colony because it was well known that... Uh, uh, and Natal, and Natal. Yeah, and Natal. It was well known that the, the uh, superior Boer forces would uh, look to, to take those those towns. And then the idea was to invade what was known as the Orange Free State, followed by the Transvaal. This is so, absolute nonsense. No. Yeah. You're saying that British generals and politicians are capable of nonsense? Yeah, it's pie in the sky, frankly. Thank God we have a regime now in Britain that never, ever, ever, ever has sort of nonsensical decisions and makes mistakes. It's a blessing, isn't it? Now, uh, so uh, when do they get out there? They set off in September, so they arrive, surprisingly, in October, 10th of October, at Cape Town. And when they get there, it's the cusp of the war. The war hasn't actually been declared at this point. Uh, I think it's declared next... Oh, it's next day, yes. They're declared next day. And who's in charge? They're, they're initially attached to Cavalry Brigade, uh, and that's with an infantry division that's being formed up in, to defend the Natal under the command of the... Oh, he's so old, the venerable... He's always referred to as venerable or old or past it. Sir George White, General Sir George White. How, and, hang on, you know, how, old, how old was he? He was uh, 64, Gary. How old are you, Pete? 
65. I guess I probably knew the venerable Peter Hart. Well, or just old. <laughs> venerable Bede, I am. Uh, the, venerable so the, something. The, yeah. The war starts next day, 11th of October, 1899. And uh, they set sail uh, on the Norman again via Port Elizabeth. I don't know why I'm doing this. They go up to Durban, Durban and they arrive on the 19th of October. They go ashore and they get on a choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo train to Ladysmith. Uh, now, is this is this a safe journey? No, because you've got... <laughs> the, the boards are highly mobile, Pete. We've already said that. Um, oh, yeah. And also, the, you know, you're on a fixed line. The, the, they couldn't go very far from the rail lines because, don't forget, this, this is the height of the summer in South Africa. This is 100 degrees in some areas. Um, and, the, and the boards know about the train lines. So they, they might have cut the line. and uh, But it's quite interesting that, that Hague is fairly uh, sanguine about the whole thing. He doesn't worry too much, does he? What, what does he say? He says, I slept soundly through all. It's an experienced old campaigner now. He's not worried, is he? Anyway, they get there on the, uh, 05.40. That's in the morning on the 20th October. And uh, they were ordered, immediately ordered to go on a recce, a recce in strength with the 5th Lancers and a mounted infantry force. And they were going to the railway station at Elanslach. Where uh, the... Boers had been ordered, uh, where the Boers uh, had cut the line. They're, this is what you're talking about. They're, they're, the Boers know the importance of the railways. Um, and uh, so they're, 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 they do a wrecker, and then Haig prepares plans for an attack next morning, four o'clock. So he didn't have much time, does he, to prepare the plans? And next day, uh, uh, French and Haig, and it's like some sort of... French and Saunders. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, and five squadrons of the Imperial Light Horse and the Natal Field Battery, they, hele- they head off for the Elantlacht station, uh, covered by uh, some of the Natal Light Horse. And they find that the Boers are there in strength, about a thousand men, two or three long-range guns. And so they, they call for reinforcements, a couple of infantry battalions are sent, more guns. So a squad of the 5th Lancers, two squads of mounted rifles. And there's quite a battle, isn't it? Tell me about the battle. Well, no, Hague, I, I, first of all, I'd say that it's quite interesting. The infantry are commanded by our, our old friend Sir Ian Hamilton. Ooh, so we're starting to it. see some of the uh, characters that we, we know and love from the Great War are starting to appear through these conflicts. Uh, so I've got a, a quote from Haig here, and he, he says... The batteries crossed the railway and opened fire on the enemy's guns, which were already in position and knew the range. The Imperial Light Horse, with one squadron of the 5th Lancers, covered the right flank of the infantry attack and, acting dismounted, pushed forward in line with the Gordon Highlanders. Fine body of men. After bombarding the position for half an hour, the infantry pushed forward one battalion against the front and two along the ridge against the enemy's left flank. All available cavalry was concentrated upon the left and occupied Elenslagt station at 4.45pm and from there threatened the enemy's right and rear. As the enemy began to leave the position, a squadron of lancers and one of dragoons charged through the fugitives, killing many and capturing 40 prisoners. The position was captured about 6pm night, put an end to the pursuit. 
Now, he writes to his sister, doesn't he, Henrietta, and this is a theme of it. He, he's, Henrietta's a sort of replacement mother in, in, in some weird way. Uh, uh, and well, he, he writes he's, in, to... he's in constant communication with her throughout, well, fr- frankly, throughout his career. And he and writes, what does he say? He writes and he says, The Boers fought till the end with extraordinary courage. This is accounted for by the fact that the command was composed of high-class Boers, who had more or less organised the present revolt, and so must sink or swim by the result of the campaign. The Imperial Light Horse fought well. After the battle, I had a busy night examining prisoners and preparing for the return of troops and wounded to Ladysmith. We had prisoners of all kinds, Boers, Germans, Hollanders, American-Irish, British, naturalised Boers, etc., etc. All the leaders were either shot down or taken prisoner. None escaped. The Boers say they never thought the British could have taken their position. They abandoned their tents, wagons, everything in fact, and took to flight. Some 1815 brandy was found in one of the wagons. (laughs) They are wild at the way the fugitives were killed with the lance. They say it is butchery, not war. But as they use express rifle bullets, I don't quite see where the difference comes in. This is a constant refrain. Oh, but other sides always accuse people of dumb, dumb bullets, rifle, uh, express rifle bullets. There's always this idea. Part of it's because the damaged rifle bullets do, and part of it's because I'm not sure dumb, dumb bullets and things have been properly outlawed at that time. Uh, but it's a constant refrain. In the, in the First World War at Gallipoli, they're going on and on about the Turks using dumb, dumb bullets, and the Turks go on it's the same. It's a constant theme. Now, so this is quite a success, and uh, and, uh, and and then uh, White all them to fall back on Ladysmith. There are reasons for that which we won't go into. It's not he's not being stupid, but it's it's a, a really important uh, part because what's going on at Mafeking and Kimberley? How are they doing there? Well, they're coming under siege because uh, you know <laughs> Ellen's Lacta was was the first British victory. Um, the British hadn't been doing particularly well, so um, there'd been a number of, of defeats and. Uh, Mafkin Kimberley were under siege and the Natal troops were concentrating at Ladysmith. They're also under threat of being encircled. Not good news. It isn't good news, is it? And now the cavalry are taking... Now, notice... One thing I would say is you notice that he talks about dismounted cavalry action... He, he to, to Haig, and this is a constant theme of this, cavalry are all-round soldiers. They can gallop up to somewhere, they can either charge with the arme blanche, a sword or lance, or they can fight on foot. They are the all-round soldiers, the perfect soldier to Haig. Anyway, there's several small actions, and uh, uh, Haig thinks that the cavalry are the key weapon in this campaign, and this is illustrated when he hears that an infantry column had been obliged to surrender on the 30th of October. What does he say, Gary? It's quite interesting, isn't it? The Gloucester Regiment and Royal Irish Fusiliers had been surrounded yesterday about 2pm and forced to surrender. Their ammunition is stated to have run out owing to the ammunition mules having been stampeded by Boers throwing stones down the mountainside into the gorge through which the detachment was marching. It should be noticed that this detachment moved without any cavalry at all, as well let a blind man man out without a dog as infantry without some horsemen to attend and reconnoitre for it. That is quite an interesting thing. And of course he's right. It's just what force provides the reconnaissance. Uh, And as the 20th century moves on, it will become uh, aircraft, it will become uh, light tanks or armoured cars. 
But the principle is the same. You don't have infantry marching in through hostile but ground blind. with that blind. Yeah. So, and people are misunderstanding what Haig's saying often. Now, uh, orders come back uh, from uh, General Redvers Buller that the uh, dynamic duo, Batman and Robin, I presume. Oh, no. French uh, and Saunders. French and Saunders. All French and Haig. Which one of those? I can't get everything right in podcasts, can we? They're needed back at Cape Town because French is going to take command of the cavalry division that's, that's being formed coming out from the UK. Uh, they set off at 1,300 hours on th- 3rd of November. And it's quite a journey, isn't it? Uh, it really is. Now, by this time, is that railway, is it, is it cut or not, Gary? Let's hear what Haig has to say. The train consisted of an engine, two trucks and the guards van, at the end of which there was a first-class compartment. The general, self and two ADCs travelled in first-class compartment. Seven servants and the guard in the guards van, nine horses in one of the trucks and our baggage in the other. No passengers went with this train. The train, which started at 10am, had been fired upon and the railway authorities doubted our getting through. About half an hour after leaving, the train came under a heavy fire from both sides of the railway. We heard shells bursting and bullets hit the carriages. We all lay down on the seats and floor. Not a very dignified position for the cavalry division staff to assume, but discretion is sometimes the better part of valour. Pieter's station was reached about 1.30. The train halted. A British post was found here. As we went again, at about three miles beyond, the train was again fired upon. At about 2pm, Colenso station was reached. An examination of our train showed that the iron truck containing some of our baggage had been pierced by a two or two and a half inch shell. Had the shell hit the engine or a wheel, we should have been on our way to Pretoria instead of to Durban. Or indeed, if the Boers had turned up a rail, the engine driver would not have seen it because the moment the Boers began shooting, he laid down amongst the coal. <laughs> and who blames him, Gary? No one. Well, it's not going to go off the rails, is it? <laughs> Unless they tore up a rail. <laughs> um, so uh, some of uh, Haig's luggage is damaged in it by a shell. And it really is a close shave. It is a very close shave. Uh, and there's an armoured train follows him about a mile behind. And that was the last train to get through before they, they actually cut the line. And Ladysmith is besieged. They leave behind Sir George, General Sir George White. And he may have been venerable or old or past it or whatever else you think people of that age are i don't know uh you know you young thrusters like you gary or haig who is considerably younger than you um they they um they're still fire in his belly i think and and uh and there's fire in mine gary and uh he his, his, his position in ladysmith looks untenable and general sir redvers buller orders him to destroy their guns and surrender on the best terms he can and and white responds with the Brilliant. Uh, I have Lady Smith for the Queen. But it can't have been that particular accent because he would have surrendered, definitely. And he, he does hold out. He holds out for another four months before the town's relieved in February 1900. I like Sir George White. He's my kind of guy. Old and bastard, but capable of great determination. Anyway, Haig goes to Cape Town. He, he's thinking about what he's seen about the campaign, and he's come to some conclusions. Now, let's just run through these conclusions. So what, what's his first conclusion, Gary? Well, he, he thinks that artillery fire uh, is chiefly having a moral effect, and the effect of uh, the shrapnel fire itself was 
pretty disappointing, frankly. And uh, and it had been up to that point. And as you rightly have pointed out on a number of occasions through our podcast, the British introduced the 18-pounder due to the inadequacies of their artillery, which was uncovered in this war. That's right. So, I mean, it is, it isn't the deadly weapon it was in the, the First World War, the Great War. No, they made changes as a result of what they found. Now, another one is the one that always, always hung round his neck. He's convinced the cavalry have a vital role uh, and they need that mobility to counter the mobility of the boa horsemen. Now, um... Well, he's right in this case, isn't he? You cannot have a mobile enemy and not be mobile yourself. He's absolutely yeah. right. He likes the new cavalry carbine and he rates the potential for, for, for the firepower that dismounted cavalry can, can generate, having been moved on their horses quickly. I think he's right. But then another thing is often hung around his neck as a, a thing. He, he's very against mount. He's very against mounted infantrymen, isn't he? You, yeah, he's you, very, you, he's you, very you, disparaging of them. He, I mean, he considers them to be a waste of scarce quality horses. Uh, he thinks and, and, for, and fodder. I think yeah. the words waste of space is what you were going to say. <laughs> I mean, he's very critical of their horsemanship. He considers them to be poor horsemen. Uh, he means that, that they're unable to keep their horses healthy. He's incapable of carrying out uh, a, a proper recce if you've got a, a, a poor horse. So what does he want? Well, he wants properly trained cavalry. It, not, not necessarily regular cavalry, but he, he thinks... You know, the Imperial Light Horse, for example, he admired them greatly. He just wants the highest standard of training and ultimately a cavalryman should be a good horseman capable of using a sword or lance, as I mentioned, as the arm blanche in a charge, carrying out a recce or acting dismounted as a fully competent infantryman. So what he's asking for is the perfect soldier. Yeah. And, and with a perfect wrong. animal as well. I mean, he, he's, you know, he, he sees the two going hand in hand. Now, French uh, is put in charge of the cavalry. Now, they're to defend the Cape Colony from uh, the Boer attack, they're from the Colesburg. They're coming from Colesburg. And, and uh, Buller orders French to mount an, e an active defence and to tie down the enemy. Now, Haig, as his chief of staff, he does most of the, 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 the detail work, doesn't he? So what's, so what's Haig doing as chief of staff? I'm really very busy. So many things to arrange. We have the line of communications from Port Elizabeth to control, as well as this place and the enemy, some 5,000, to retain at Colesburg. The civilians get excited and we are flooded with telegrams from magistrates and those who think the seaside is the only safe place. You've got a caravan at the seaside. Yeah, and under lockdown, I hope it's very safe. Uh, others again get fits and get ill in di diverse ways of which we must be duly informed. So we have information of all sorts to deal with and so many questions to ask. We administer martial law, of course, rough and ready. Then again, on the one hand, we have Gataka defeated at Stormberg on Sunday morning. And tonight we hear that Methuen has been checked on the Modder River. While in our front are some four to five thousand Boers about 13 miles this side of Colesburg. Our task is to bluff them with the few cavalry we have. So far we've been successful in hemming them in. If we only had sufficient cavalry with fit horses, we could do anything we liked with the Boers. 
Now, they were doing well, but this is in sharp contrast to what's going on because this is during the, the Black Week, isn't it? Uh, during uh, the, it's well, it's, it's uh, roughly speaking the ninth to the fifteenth of sixteenth of September of December, eighteen ninety nine. So, what's happened? So, what, what goes wrong in that week? What's the first disaster? Well, as he mentioned, on the uh, the ninth, tenth of December, General Gatake's um, night attack into Strongbore defences at the Battle of Stormberg ended in failure. Well, it's the first. Then, uh, sort of, the next day, 11th of December, uh, Lieutenant General Lord Methuen, I've no idea. I mean, this is interesting. that We're not familiar with these names. It shows how unfamiliar we are that we can't pronounce half the names. Uh, he's defeated at the Battle of Magus Fontaine, uh, and that, that means they, they failed to relieve uh, the, the Siege of Kimberley. And then there's another. That's not enough, is it? There's an even worse battle coming up on the 15th of December. What's that battle, Gary? Yeah, on the 15th of December, the force under General Sir Redford's Buller himself are defeated at the Battle of Colenso. So All of these disasters, aren't there? Heavy casualties, very slim bar losses. It's, this isn't like, uh, you know, shooting down uh, the the, uh, the dervishes, as they called them, the, 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 uh, the warriors of, of uh, the Mahdi or the Khalifa in the Sudan. This is, this is almost the reverse, isn't it? In this case, we're, we're taking the casualties. We're the ones being shot down. If, yeah. If you, although I, I don't, I want to remove the word we because I don't think I'm a supporter of the British in this war. No, and I think I think we're the baddies. <laughs> and there's a contrast, isn't there? Because both French and, by implication, Hague are doing well at this time. They are. Uh, uh, they are. They're, they're, what are they, how are they doing it? They're trying to bluff the Boers. They're raiding, they're marching, they're counter-marching. They're, they're, they're here, where, and nowhere baby, aren't they? To, to, to quote uh, Fantastica. <laughs> uh, they're, they're difficult to pin down. Nobody knows where they are. Uh, and the, the Boers think they're opposed by a much stronger force than they actually were. Uh, uh, Hagen and, and French work hand in glove. And, and, and one of the sources says every day they, they carry out at 0420 in the morning a joint recce. We're just a, we're going out to, to, to see what's happening, get right on top of issues and, and, and really a brilliant, almost a guerrilla campaign. Um, now, uh, Black Week results in a, a change in command. Uh, Buller is removed and uh, from command uh, as high command and Lord Roberts comes in. Uh, um, Although Buller remains in theatre, doesn't he? he don't, oh yes, he re- sorry, yeah, he's moved sideways. It, they do that at uh, Transport for London, I believe. Uh, <laughs> if you're really bad, you get moved sideways. It certainly did that at the War Museum. If if you were completely useless, you were promoted and moved sideways into a job that that uh, wasn't so noticeable what you were doing. Because the higher you go in any organisation, the more bloody useless. You haven't gone off at a tangent at all here, have you? No, no, no. Well, I think these were valid uh, similes, Gary. Okay. So Lord Roberts arrives, and, and who's he got with him, Pete? Uh, would that be Kitchener of Khartoum? He has. He's his chief of staff. Yeah, it seems ridiculous, uh, knowing what a uh, useless idiot... Rob- well, sorry, I shouldn't say that. that uh, it seems weird to have him as chief of staff and not in command, but uh, there you go. So Kitchener, fresh from his triumph as Sirdar, commander-in-chief in the Egyptian Sudan Theatre, comes in as chief of staff to Roberts to provide... Some sort of whatever. Um, now, uh, how do the British react to reverses then and always? Uh, th- th- there'd been reverses, so what do they do? They well, change they, command and they, they send in what? Reinforcements. Yes. Get and reinforcements the, and actually go on the offensive. 
And that's what happens. They send in, instead of trying to win with 15,000 troops outnumbered, they send in masses of reinforcements, masses and masses. And this is, for the rest of this podcast, you can assume that the British are steadily reinforcing. More and more troops are being sent out. Thousands, and later on it gets up to hundreds of thousands. Yeah, by the end of the By the end of the war, I believe it's it's close on half a million soldiers have actually passed through South Africa. So that's going on throughout that. Uh, They're being sent to South Africa. Now, in uh, late January 1900, French, Sir John French. No, John French. Major General. No, no, Major General. Yes, stop confusing me. Major General French is appointed to command the Cavalry Division and he asks for Haig to be his Chief of Staff, as he would. Uh, now, this is the point about the loan. This is why it looks bad. It looks bad, doesn't it, Gary? Uh, but nevertheless, there's a reason for it, because this is what French says when he telegraphs Lord Roberts. This is in January. What does he say? Oh, I say it. French. Right. Here I go. I'm going to be John French now. <laughs> Major Gen- Major Haig has performed duty as Chief Staff Officer to, to a division since landing in Natal. He has acted in this capacity under my command in three general engagements and many, many smaller fights. I have several times mentioned him in my dispatches. His services have been invaluable. So how how does, uh, what happens? Of course. Well, firstly, uh, I would say, you know, given given the circumstances, as you, you rightly say, around the loan, you know, he's mentioned him in dispatches a number of times. Those who wanted to, to de- be detracting of Haig and French could point to that as yes, the reason that he's being mentioned in dispatches. I don't think it is, though. I don't think uh, it is. I think it's, it's performing well. It does, but it's still wrong. And and re- let's be fair, it's not only French who thinks Haig's doing well. It's a perception across high command uh, uh, at the time. Now, uh, however, however... Uh, shibboleth of uh, seniority. Uh, Haig is still a major. It's a, it's a colonel's command, and they send out Colonel Earl. Earl Errol. Now, I thought uh, perhaps Earl was his first name. Uh, no, there is a not, suggestion that, a... <laughs> um, that uh, Lord Roberts tended to favour um, those with titles in his immediate staff. And in fact, there's a, a suggestion that. Uh, the DSOs that were awarded to his staff were for Duke's sons only. <laughs> <laughs> That's the wit of the age. Oh, if only someone to write a book about military humour. Um, now, uh, it's, uh, and Haig must have been a bit disappointed, but he, he, he stays uh, deputy assistant as adjutant general. Well, in, so he's, in, sti- he's in, still dag. He's it's still just dag. Not a... And in February 1900, he writes to Henrietta and he says that uh, his friends seem to be more concerned about it than he is. And uh, and that's probably true. He knew that given time, he would reap the rewards of uh, of his good work. So uh, now what happens now? Uh, the, the biggest thing, we can't go through the Boer War bit by bit, but there is one big thing coming up. The Cavalry Division are launched into the blue to accomplish the relief of Kimberley. They sweep round the Boer positions to launch a surprise attack. Uh, they set off on the 12th of February and they moved as fast as humanly possible. Now, this later becomes controversial because this, this manoeuvre actually destroys the effectiveness of the Cavalry Division by breaking so many of their horses and knackering the whole bloody division. How However, uh, for 
it wasn't ordered by French or Hague. It was ordered by Roberts. Uh, so it's outside uh, the scope of this, really. The logistical problems are within our scope because Hague has to cope with them. Uh, but then the, 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 the final attack is launched on the 5th of, 15th of February. And this is... Uh, now, you've remembered the name of the place because I've forgotten it. Well, it's Clip Drift, I think. Uh, I'm not really sure if it's... It is. It is Clip, uh, yeah. It's K-L-I-P. Clip. Um, and, Clip uh, it's it's a significant action, and and in fact, uh, uh, Robert suggests that the date, the fifteenth of February, will be recalled for years to come. And I think he's right because um, we've recalled it. It's well, yes, only because we only because we looked it. it up. <laughs> it was real boys' own stuff, though, wasn't it? The attack. It and, was. Uh, and Haig says there was an open plain towards Abus Dam between the two parties of the enemy. The ground rose from the river, so we could not see whether there were wire fences or not. But there seemed to be only a few boars at the end of the rise. There seemed only one thing to be done if we were to get to Kimberley before the boars barred our path, namely charge through the gap between the two positions. Half our guns were ordered to keep down the fire from the copies in our front, which would be on... hills, isn't it? Like the cop. (laughs) Which would be... Thanks for getting that in. Which would be on the right flank of the charging cavalry and half engage the enemy's guns. The 9th and 16th Lancers were then ordered to charge, followed by Broadwood's brigade in support. Our Lancers caught several boars and rode down many others in the open plain and really suffered little from the very hot rifle fire. About 20 casualties, I fancy. And we passed within 1,000 yards of the boar position. We got to Kimberley about 6pm the garrison made not the slightest attempt to assist us. The people of Kimberley looked fat and well. It was the relieving force which needed food. And this is all part of this thing, this attack. There's two three points I want to make, one of which has just occurred to me when you're talking. This is very like one of Rommel's armoured sweeps around the right of, uh, of, the, of the, uh, the, 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 the British Army in North Africa. It is a, if you think of cavalry as being an armoured division, you sort of get the feel of what's going on here. A sudden thrust out into the blue and then smashing into people, catching them by surprise. That's the first point I want to make. The second is that Kimberley wasn't in particularly dire need of being relieved. And, and that... I'm going to use the words utter bastard Cecil Rhodes because I re- he's one of the people most responsible for this totally unnecessary war. Uh, he, he, he treated the senior staff to a champagne reception mm. uh, with, 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 with lovely food and everything. And it's just... Uh, and it does really damage the... Uh, it damages the cavalry. They are absolutely buggered, to use the technical term. Uh, their their horses are are totally exhausted and they do not recover for for quite a while. 29th of February, Ladysmith formally relieved and and I think the the, the mood music's changed now, hasn't it? Uh, It's not the Boers threatening us. uh, No, the British are now in the advantage. Now, uh, somebody else is on the up as well. Who's that? Well, Haig's personal career is on the rise. On the 21st of February, he's been promoted to Lieutenant Colonel. And surprise, surprise, he's appointed to replace Lord Errol as French's Assistant Adjutant General. So ah, presumably Lord Errol didn't do too good a job. Yeah, it's uh, a, yeah they, they moved him sideways. Ridiculous. The, the next phase of the uh, is directed by Roberts. And he, he this is the advance on the Orange Free Strait ca- capital of Blomfontein. Blomfontein. Thank you. 
thank you. Uh, they, they were blocked by a strong bow force at Poplar Grove. And uh, so again, Poplar 7th of March. Poplar Grove. I said Poplar Grove, you yes, bastard. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to... just disrupting me. Uh, you know I'm not too knowledgeable about this. and I'm not. We're not going to do this. He sends out the cavalry division again, plus two mounted infantry brigades, and another flank march. And this time to cut off the Boers' retreat to Bloemfontein. And it doesn't work, does it? The, 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 the Boers manage to escape and disengage. Now, several, and, and, and that includes most of the Boer high command. Not When, 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 uh, when Boer, uh, Haig talked about ca- the, the, the high command being with the, uh, the Elandslacht, he was talking bollocks. They, they weren't there. And the who real, are we talking about? Is, We're talking about Bertha, De Witt... It's both presidents of both republics. Yeah, they're both here. And they escape. They escape. He doesn't capture President Kruger. They don't capture everybody. And uh, Frank Roberts is furious with French. Indeed, the, the two start to fall out. Uh, he blames him. Haig excuses the cavalry. He points out they're just completely and utterly knackered. Their horses are knackered. They've been in action since the 11th of February. And he also, as was his wont, throws casts aspersions at the the mounted infantry brigade he, he just says they're useless and waste of horse flesh um, however Blomfontein is still occupied on 13th of March and then Johannesburg on the 31st of May Pretoria 5th of June oh, it's, hey, it's all over hey, it's all over Iran that must be the end of the podcast well it's quite short today isn't it yeah. 44 minutes oh, well what happens next then I suppose it's tea and buns uh, tea and buns tea and no. trumpets the war changes from battles to a guerrilla-based resistance, which oh. uh, are carried out by skillful, hardy men determined not to accept defeat and, in fact, referred to as the bitter enders. You're occasionally referred to as a bitter ender. I'm saying nothing. Whatever I say now <laughs> would be wrong. <laughs> now, um, so, so, so Haig, is, they're facing this new thing and he's a bit taken aback, isn't he? He's wondering how 70,000 British troops which is how many were in theatre at that time, are being defied. And they reckon there's only about 2,000 Boers under De Wet. Um, and he's also becoming critical of Lord Roberts. And you've you've discerned a theme here. Are you re- going to read the quote? But you've discerned a theme about Haig by now, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, he's often critical of uh, his senior officers, in, and particularly in his letters to Henrietta. And in fact, um, uh, she, uh, in one letter, uh, points out that the the then Prince of Wales uh, had commented on how he should should be more careful about some of the comments that he's making, but it's but it's something he he does throughout his career, uh, and you could perhaps understand it particularly as, you know, he was asked to comment by Evelyn Wood when he was in the Sudan, so so he just kept that going. And uh, so, what does he say? Well, he, he's he's talking about Lord Roberts, and he says. The field marshal was in a bad temper yesterday and opened upon French because so many men were missing. But what can you expect to happen if horses stop from exhaustion and one covers 60 or more miles in two days? Kitchener also has a baddish time with Robert's temper. The Landroth of Kroonstad came out to surrender the town to French, but we packed him off into the town again to wait for the field marshal. The latter, meantime, had heliographed that no patrols were to enter the town. We came on here with the cavalry, and Roberts marched in at the head of the infantry. I'm afraid he's a silly old man, and scarcely fit to be C&C of this show. Now, 
that's quite sharp on uh, uh, Brobish. But the, there's a lot. Of, I, I mean, I was looking. The, the, there's quite a lot that people say that he he made a fixation of taking the the capitals, and he didn't he didn't so, sort of try and catch the the Boer troops. And this this is an enduring theme that people are on about. Now, are the cavalry still busy? Do they still have a role in this new guerrilla warfare? I suspect the answer to this is going to be yes once they've recovered. Yeah, and Haig says. The infantry are quite jealous of the successes of the cavalry. The poor creatures merely carry their guns without loosing off. In fact, they simply wear out their boots to no purpose. All the same, but for the cavalry, many of them would now be below ground. So this is a restatement of this theme. It's certainly not over, is it? And so the cavalry divisions divided up into lots of columns uh, and they've got to... uh, protect supply lines, protect, uh, they've got to provide mobile uh, columns, they've got to pursue and, 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 and exterminate uh, these guerrilla bands. That's what's going on. And, and during this time, Haig is French's chief of staff. Uh, and his orderly mind is coping with a lot of problems, a lot. Uh, and uh, it, 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 th- 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 this is where... Everybody's saying, why, 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 why hasn't Haig got an independent command? But, but that's not what's happening, is it? That, that both Haig and French, French, they, they both think he should carry on in the job he's got. Yeah, his old mentor, Evelyn Wood, was really anxious that Haig be given uh, command of a regiment. But, but both Haig and French believed that the, the requirements of the service were best served by him remaining in post and assisting French. Absolutely. Now, Lord Roberts, who uh, doesn't come out of this awfully well, he goes home in December 1900. That's all over. It's all over by the shouting. Uh, Well, there, another two years shouting. Uh, And he leaves Kitchener as commander-in-chief, which... uh, Now, previously, um, Haig's been slightly critical of, I think you'd call it minor tactics of Kitchener. He thinks that... and He had criticised, and he also criticised, as a staff officer which Haig was, the over-centralisation of command functions. Uh, that, that, that is the way that Kitchener always operates. But he does recognise his talents, doesn't he? You've got a quote here. Yeah, he says, Kitchener occasionally gets alarmed without real cause and hurries troops to this or that point without sufficiently considering what the effect must be. So one is forced to conclude that the Sirdar is not that large-minded man capable of taking a broad view of the whole situation, which the papers would have us believe he is. At the same time, there is no doubt that he has great energy and power of organising. So let us hope that the present state of this country will soon improve. Now, Kitchener brings a change of policy, doesn't it? And what he does is uh, controversial in the extreme and in some senses indefensible. He divides up the veldt, he uses hundreds of miles of barbed wire, defended blockhouses, uh, and that's just to try and restrict the Boers' freedom of movement, which is, of course, their main asset. Uh, He also introduces, uh, and this is... uh, indefensible a scorched earth policy uh, they burnt the farms the crops they, they killed the animals or, or, or gathered them in to deny them to the boer bands uh, and he gathers uh boer civilians into concentration camps now uh, you feel strongly about this don't you Gary? well we, uh, we both feel strongly about yeah this. i mean they destroyed about thirty thousand boer homesteads and originally 
these camps, which were given the really unfortunate name of concentration camps, were meant to be um, purely there to, to house the, the uh, dispossessed people. But of 154,000 Boer and African women and children that were incarcerated in these camps, about 32,000 died. Now, that's about 21%, so, so one in five. Now, a disproportionate amount of those deaths were from childhood diseases, so were children. You know, uh, it, was, it was incompetence rather than neglect uh, or a, a overt... Uh, uh, malevolent. I just I think, it was, think I, I think it was neglect. Uh, I, I think it's incompetence and neglect. Maybe. Well, I just think they hadn't thought about it at all. Um, it, so, it, what what are these diseases? So, um, well, it, it, it's primarily typhoid and measles. It ran riot. Um, you know, the camps were crowded. There's no excuse, Pete. I'm struggling here because. There is absolutely no excuse at all. Well, uh, I, 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 uh, now, what about Haig? Is Haig, as you know, Haig is one of my uh, probably uh, favourite generals. Uh, I presume Haig uh, condemned and uh, condemned this behaviour. I presume Haig, as a reasonable, intelligent man, uh, was was appalled by this. No, he's, he's very much in favour of them. I've got a quote here. Uh, Haig says, "Many poor creatures." brought in their guns and swore an oath not to fight us again. Then we withdraw our troops and the Transvaalers burn all the farms. Such conduct merely brings us into contempt, although Roberts no doubt expected to gain popularity with the British public by being generous and merciful to the conquered. It seems high time we treated these people with greater severity. Up to the present, we have made the war too pleasant for the free staters, and so they allow it to continue. If we were only to loot and burn a few farms, the inhabitants would wish to get us out of the country soon and at once sue for peace. Now, this is the the policies of the time. Uh, colonial times were, were rough, very rough. But we don't think it excuses... I don't think it excuses Kitchener. It doesn't excuse Haig as one of the... I mean, he's the chief of staff. He's one of the main practitioners. And I don't uh, think it uh, excuses the British at all. I think this is uh, terrible behaviour um, uh, and uh, and a stain on uh, on Haig's career. Uh, 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 yeah. And Kitchener and the British Empire. We, we are not coming out of this well, are we? No, and in some respects you can excuse the treatment of the fighting Boers themselves because the, the, the British saw them as um, uh, treasonable, frankly. So they, they were uh, acting in a, a treasonable way in their view. But you cannot, cannot excuse what happened to the civilian population. And, you know, it's a large proportion of the overall population. 32,000 dead. It's terrible. Now, in January 1901, Haig at last gets his independent command. Uh, it's a, about a brigade strength and divided up into three columns. It, it, it rises to about six. And they're mobile columns, mainly of cavalry, various for, for forms and mounted infantry. And they're operating in the northwest of Cape Colony. How does Haig, Haig feel about that? Well, he's absolutely delighted. And he says, this is quite a big business to have in hand. And I came from Johannesburg without any staff at all but have been most fortunate in picking up fellows to assist. If you will look at the map, you will see the great area over which troops under my control are operating. 
The question of feeding and keeping in communication with the several parts of the column is at times difficult, while at the same time I have had to assist in the administration of the districts through which I passed. All the magistrates nearly are disloyal, and three quarters of the population. Indeed, I may say all farmers are Dutch. However, I enjoy myself very well. This is a nice change to have a show of one's own. At last, I've got quite a nice command, much more interesting than a cavalry brigade, because I can get no orders from anyone, but merely move as I think best in pursuit of the enemy. So he's weaving backwards and forwards across the veld. Uh, different columns, a real threat to any guerrilla forces in the area. Now, in July 1901, he's also promoted. He's double-hatted, isn't he? Yeah, what, what happens next? Yeah, he gets appointed to command of the 17th Lancers. and uh, They're quite a fashionable regiment, are they? Yeah, they are. And Haig says, I took over command of the 17th Lancers last Thursday as I thought it best to identify myself with the regiment as soon as possible, having been appointed their commanding officer. I have them here with me, and find I can easily look after the regiment in addition to directing the other columns. I know the country so well now that it does not bother me much to make up my mind where to send the latter to hunt the enemy. Besides, I am giving the squadron commanders a chance of having a little show occasionally on their own account. There is nothing so good as responsibility for making good officers. He'd enjoyed responsibility himself, hadn't he? Uh, and, uh, and now he was, uh, th- this is good. He's giving responsibility to other people in the same way as he'd been lucky enough to have it in the Sudan, for instance. Uh, now, we can't look at, th- th- there's about, there's lots of time. We're just going to look at some themes now. Uh, let's go through, 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 through the themes. Um, uh, let's pick up, well, well, my first theme that I want to look at, and I think you've got supporting quotes for for these, so we'll try. My first theme is, it's really, really, really difficult to pin down the Boer guerrilla forces, isn't it? it? It is frustrating for them. Yeah, Haig says, by August 1st, I had a line of stops from a point west of Mariusburg, about 200 miles long. Kritzinger and some other commanders tried to break through my line of stops, but they were checked in the passes and retired northwards. I followed them up at once and fairly hunted them back and forth, but always getting them northwards. Then, on the 9th of August, I really had Kritzinger and his men surrounded, but somehow he managed to slip through. But I had Krabby's column handy, and making him leave his guns, we raced Kritzinger for about 30 miles, as hard as we could go, up to the Tebus Railway. I told old Krabby to kill every horse if necessary, but he must gallop. The Boers took up a position about 14 miles north of Marysburg, but we soon had them out of it and continued the chase until quite dark. And this is what's happening all the time, is it? Uh, There's the dashing here, there, and every harassing, pursuing the the, the Boer guerrilla forces. Now, the other thing is that there are continual ambushes and reverses. That's the thing about uh, guerrilla warfare, isn't it, Gary? You get these sudden attacks just because they can pick their point at which they attack you. And so they're going to catch you unawares at times. And this this happens. uh, And you've got a quote here now from Haig. Yeah, not forgetting, of course, that there are losses all the time during these actions. And Haig says, our men held the position to the last. Uh, This is partly, this is a bunch of uh, his own regiment and the the mounted infantry uh, uh, that that were caught. Yeah, sorry, Gary. Our men held the position to the last and not a man surrendered. Out of 130 men, 29 were killed and 41 wounded. The other men were still fighting when the next squadron came up to their support and the enemy made off. All the officers were either killed or wounded. Such nice fellows, too. 
It made one feel very miserable to see what had taken place. The wounds were terrible. The brutes used explosive bullets. I at once galloped to the scene of action, but was too late to come up with the enemy. And this is, uh, the, I mean, he was clearly shocked. And the, the, he, uh, Haig was always quite upset by casualties, but he, he tried to control that throughout his later career, and he had good reason to have to. Now, the other theme, I'm sorry, is that Haig develops a really, really harsh attitude to the Boers. Uh, and he considers them, it's, uh, in quotes, brutes and ruffians. And the, he, the, the, the rule was that... Uh, <laughs> To him, all Boers caught wearing British khaki uniforms were to be shot out of hand. And that mirrors French and Kitchener's orders. Another double act there, French and Kitchener. To Haig, they're they're just brutes. They're traitors, aren't they? They're traitors to the crown, as far as he's concerned. Uh, But, you know, one man's resistance hero is another man's terrorist monster. Again, we have aspects of that in our lives today. Uh, Give us an example of what he says that shows this well brutality his brutality as well my columns all the time close on the enemy's tail i don't think the latter's horses can go much longer he's dropped a good many and we have picked up some prisoners those taken in khaki we shot at once one was taken actually riding with our scouts and wearing the uniform of nesbitt's horse the fellow's movement seemed suspicious and he was arrested for identification his uniform was complete all except the badge nh which he pretended he had only just lost. Finally, he confessed that he was a Boer and was promptly shot. Now, that's that's harsh. Uh, on the other hand, it, it's, it's been known before that these things happen, uh, but uh, it's, it's part of a very nasty war. The other thing is Haig is very well aware of what of the, the, the nature of the problems of anti-insurgency warfare. Um, but it's just the sheer complexity. And he's got, here's another quote of, of how he struggles to deal with just, just keeping all these columns, all the, all the blockhouses, everything in the air, uh, afloat, if you like, not that they're at sea. I had the line of blockhouses, which is being erected in that area, also under me. I have four columns, really more than I can feed. It will take 300 wagons to feed two columns. This will show you the difficulties of carrying on war in this country where there are no railways. Still, the numbers of the enemy are well over 1,400 and in a rugged country of this sort, with bad roads and no supplies and little water, all is in favour of the defender, who can live scattered about on the farms of his friends and merely concentrate when a good chance offers at attacking some carelessly guarded convoy. This is the point again. They pick their time, they pick their moment to attack when you're most vulnerable. Now, he's not the only one who thinks that. Uh, one of his staff college contemporaries was there. In fact, nearly everybody from the First World War is there. Well, um, Hunter Weston was at Clip Drift. Uh, but Lieutenant Colonel Edmund Allenby. Now, he's bad-tempered as well. And, it, and, and it, this, listen to how similar this quote is. Uh, I'll just read this. It goes, I should rather like some of those fashionable warriors who went home at the end of the war to come out and see what war looks like now that it is at an end. It might give them a few new ideas. As far as my experience goes, the war was the easiest part of the campaign. We've had more fighting since the war ended, more trekking and much more discomfort. 
I've lost 32 horses in nine days, only two of which were lost in action. The rest have died from exhaustion and short food. There is no help for it, exhausted as we are. We must patrol a lot to keep Brother Boer at a distance, as well as correct, collect grub. I must say, all the men of my column are splendid, keen as mustard, and one never hears a grumble. Would you have grumbled being in one of those I was columns? just about to say, he must have been deaf. <laughs> oh dear yeah. um, and that, that's Allenby it's the same experience uh, it, it's hard yes it is hard for them but uh, it, it's a brutal response and we keep underlying that now eventually peace negotiations begin uh, is Haig a, a, a tolerant uh, a... no his instinct is that of a hardliner and he says I hope there is no question of giving terms to these rebels it would be much better to go on fighting for 10 years than give way in anything to them and that's not how he was at the end of the Great War. So perhaps he'd learned by then. So what happens uh, in May 1902? Well, the war comes to an end. And Haig's distinctly ambivalent about the peace terms, isn't he? Because he thinks they're too reasonable, uh, that the loyal men who stayed true to the crown, they're almost ignored. But he's also happy to accept peace if, if there's a period of martial law. And he just it just all comes to an end. It's, it's strange, isn't it? Um, He's still got a lot of staff work to complete at the end of the war, but do you think he'd had a good war? Well, I think it's fair to say both he and um, French had had a, a, a really good war. I mean, French in the uh, uh, the public perception was uh, a, a hero of the war and uh, had featured largely in newspapers, as did Haig. Um, he'd had a good war. He was effectively a brigade commander on active service. So not just a chief of staff, he'd also, he'd, had, he'd been effectively, yeah, it's... it's, it's and it, as and you he, say, it was a very smart cavalry regiment, 17th. He was, yeah, he's given command of that. He's now Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, so when he sails back with the 17th Lancers, he goes back, uh, uh, he gets back to England in, in uh, late, mid, mid-October 1902. Do you think his career's taken flight? Because uh, he was a bit stuck, well, not stalled, but he was... How do you think it's gone? No, I mean, he, he's quite popular. He's often commander of the Aldershot Cavalry Brigade and Kitchener actually offers him the position of Inspector General of the Indian Cavalry. Now, they're both fantastic opportunities, aren't they? They really are. He's uh, clearly almost... destined for high rank, isn't he, at this stage? Is he the coming man? Well, that's a good phrase, yes. Uh, is, yes, uh, we'll, we'll talk about which one he, t- he picks uh, and we'll, we'll talk about the rest of his career in another session. But back to the war. So he's had a good time. Um, um, has he learnt? Uh, what has he learnt, do you think? from Because from, he, he'd learnt a lot in the Sudan. What's he learnt in uh, the Boer War? Well, it, apart from the importance of cavalry, which we featured throughout, he, he, he He's learnt that there's a vital need for staff officers to plan the operations, organise the logistics, without which the army would soon starve and run out of ammunition. And that stays with him throughout his career from this point on. He does show an understanding of the importance of logistics in the Great War, yes. Now, we want to finish with some remarks about, uh, well, you do, about the, uh, the Boer War. So, um, was it worth it? I mean, how many troops did they deploy? Well, you ultimately, about half a million. It, it, well, it's, it's in excess of 400,000 troops uh, are ultimately deployed. There's a, a, around 10,000 African soldiers also uh, in South Africa. The cost was... This is a staggering number for the time, some £200 million, 
and 22,000 lives. Uh, and that's just the British, of course. The Boers lost around 25,000 and the Africans around 12,000. And then there's all the civilians, I presume. Yeah. Now, let's not forget that within 10 years, the uh, Union of South Africa, which is the predecessor historically of the modern day Republic of South Africa, came into being on the 31st of May 1910. The first prime minister of which was Louis Botha. Wasn't wasn't he a brute? He was a according brute to Hague and a, 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 a rebel and a traitor. A, a traitor. Within, within, in fact, it was eight years. Eight years later, he's the prime minister of the country. So, what 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 is this war achieved? What's it for? Well, I think we go back to our opening remarks. Really, it's about uh, imperialism and British influence and having access to the gold. I mean the. The, the gold fields recover relatively quickly. Within four years, they're at pre-war levels and uh, they're second in the world only to uh, American gold mines at that point. So the, the, there's a great comedy sketch once. Uh, uh, are we the baddies? Yes, we're the baddies. <laughs> we're, not we're, saying, we're not saying that the Boers are uh, necessarily that lovely. No, and but, um, but but in this war we are the baddies. Yeah, and you have to think about why people went to South Africa in the first place. Often, you know, the Hoosiers went there, the Dutch, the British. It was to get away and 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 to have quote freedom. It's not really surprising they were prepared to fight for it. So there you go. Uh, so uh, Haig's done well in a, a war that's uh, not our greatest or finest hour as, as, an, as a British Empire. Uh, and uh, we, we're going to continue talking about uh, Haig. Uh, we're going to look at his career before the Great War in a podcast to come up in a month or two. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, I'll go back to the beginning and say I hope you'll remember to buy my book. The Gallipoli Evacuation, which you can get on livinghistorytv.com. And uh, uh, if you do, you'll make Matt McClellan very happy. Uh, thanks for joining me, Gary. You've been like a little ray of sunshine in my lockdown life. Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?